This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Ken Sandy as he talks about developing the empathy of Christ. Ken Sandy is the founder of Relational Wisdom 360. This seminar was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as Ken Sandy discusses developing the empathy of Christ. My name is Ken Sandy. I work with a ministry called RW360. Uh, you may be more familiar with we, the work I did for 30 years with Peacemaker Ministries. And our new ministry actually is combining issues of relational wisdom, which is basically a gospel-driven form of emotional intelligence with biblical peacemaking and Christian conciliation and helping people to get upstream of conflict as much as possible to avoid conflicts where possible, or if they do come up, to resolve them in a constructive and a God-honoring way. So we're, we're wedding both conflict prevention and conflict resolution concepts. In this workshop on empathy, what I want to do is focus in on some concepts that can really be helpful in terms of preventing a lot of the conflicts that come up in our families, our marriages, with children, uh, but also in our churches, in the workplace, with our neighbor next door. The more we develop this capacity for empathy and compassion, the, more, the better we are, better prepared we are to actually love other people and resolve differences with them. The picture you see in front of you is a picture of my grandson, Drew, um, who at age four, um, I, was sit- I was in my office, my home office. My daughter Megan was sitting on the floor talking to me and just sharing with me something that was sort of a hard thing in her life at the moment. And she was just, just softly crying. She wasn't weeping, but there, there was, you could tell in her voice, there was some grief and some sadness going on. And I, I noticed down the hallway that my grandson Drew came out of the room he was playing in, walked down the hallway into the bathroom, came back out of the room with some Kleenex in his hand, walked up to his mother, and started dabbing her tears and saying, it's okay, mommy, it's okay. Four years of age. I will never forget that. And it really illustrated to me that we, each one of us, as image bearers of Christ, have a, have a capacity. We are programmed for empathy and sympathy and compassion toward other people. Sadly, in many of us, that gift, that ability withers over time, it atrophies because we don't deliberately cultivate it and practice it. But on the other hand, through deliberate work, 
we can actually improve our capacity to read other people, to empathize with what they're going through and respond in compassionate ways to reflect the very character of Christ. Um, let me give you a personal illustration of how that affected my life. When I got out of law school back in 1981, I was clerking for a federal judge and uh, living in Montana, and he was on senior status, 85 years old, sharp as a tack, and he was set to, he was scheduled to appear on the D.C., Washington, D.C. Court of Appeals, and I asked him, on a, that was going to be on a Monday, and I said, could I leave Billings, you know, a little bit early, four days early, fly out to Chicago, attend a meeting of the Christian Legal Society, and then fly on Monday night to Washington, D.C. and be in court on Monday. He said, that's fine, that's great, very nice man. So I flew to Chicago, went to this, this conference, very casual, wearing polo shirts, things like that. Sunday afternoon, I'm packing my bag, and I realized to my horror, I forgot to, to pack a white dress shirt. So I was gonna need to appear in federal court the next day in a three-piece suit and an orange polo. I was horrified. I was horrified. And I, I just, I don't think, I don't know if I've ever been that stressed in my entire life. I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't get to a store. I had to go to this last plenary and then get on a bus, go to the airport. I was just totally distressed. Walked down to the foyer, the entryway to the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College where the last plenary address was gonna be. I was standing there in the outer room, probably 100 other attorneys and law students milling about getting ready to go in. The last speaker, an attorney from Los Angeles named Fred Cassidy, who I'd never met before, walked into the lobby, walked down sort of a cleared aisle between all these milling around people. I was standing like one or two ranks back from where he would see me. He got two paces beyond me. He stopped, pivoted, came back, looked me in the face and said, are you okay? To this day, I cannot believe that. He wasn't walking in there saying, I need to look for people who are distressed. It had become such a natural habit of this godly man that even when he was consciously thinking about the plenary address he's going to give, in the back of his mind, his mind was still going, dip, 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 picking up visual signals around him. Now, I personally believe the Holy Spirit was also involved at that moment, and he can supercharge this capacity. But between Fred's natural capacity to pick up on a facial expression of a distressed young lawyer and the work of the Holy Spirit, he came back and said, are you okay? And I said, no. And I blurted out my situation, and without hesitation, Fred reached in his pocket, pulled out his car keys. He didn't even know my name. He said, I've got a white impal out in the parking lot. There's a mall down the road about a mile. You can, there's a men's store, I think, and do you need some money? I will never forget that. I will never forget that. Every Sunday in our churches, there are people who walk into our churches, and they put on a face to look like things are okay. They just found out one of their kids is divulged a very serious sin issue. They just found out maybe their marriage is falling apart or a parent has got a terminal disease or someone's job is on the line, and yet they come to church and they're distressed, they're in agony inside, but they sort of put on a smile, but they're still sending information. They're still sending information. If we can learn how to read those facial expressions, those tone of voice, even how people walk, 
I can look at my wife and the way she goes down a hallway, I can tell you if she's in a good mood and things are well or if things weighing down on her. She walks at a different pace. So these are skills we can learn that can open the doors for ministry. These are skills we can teach to our congregation. And I want to give you an illustration, a very simple video clip here. It's actually an advertisement from Thailand. <laughs> and the, the, it's in Thai. Uh, there's some subscripts to so get some basic idea, but mostly watch this young man as he goes through just a normal day, actually several days, interacting with people around him. See if you can pick up on the emotions of the people he's interacting with. What's going on in their lives as you watch their facial expressions, their behavior, those things with them, and then how he affects them over the course of just a few days. What would happen if every person in your church went out and lived their life that way every day? They just saw people who were lonely, who were humiliated, who were hopeless, who were hurting, who were poor, who needed someone to listen and talk to them, and they responded with the compassion of Christ. Compassion is one of the qualities most frequently attributed to our Savior. Again and again in the Gospels, you see in front of you from Mark 6.34, when Jesus landed, saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were sheep like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Same thing when he saw people hungry. They didn't have food. He had compassion, and he arranged for them to be fed over and over. And the ultimate compassion, he came into this world and saw us as slaves of sin. And he gave himself to save us from that, the ultimate act of empathy and compassion. I just think that if one of the most powerful things we could do, if we really are serious about kingdom growth and church growth, is to learn how to love people. Just day to day, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, at the grocery store, there's so many people we see regularly, just to love them, encourage them, be sensitive to what they're going through, having a gentle word, giving a word of advice, sitting down, talking with them, helping them with issues. as basically issues like compassion. And the, way, the place that empathy and compassion fit into this grid is primarily this issue of other awareness. Are we good at reading other people? Can we talk to somebody and notice that today their tone of voice is a little bit different? Today, they're not walking down the hallway the, norm, the way they normally do. Today, they've got a sadness in their eyes that they normally don't have there. Do we pick up on that? Do we pick up on it? Some time ago, I found this website where you, you could test your ability to read eyes. And it showed 32 sets of eyes. All you saw was this much, just their eyes. And you had to guess which of three emotions those eyes were communicating. When I first looked at it, I thought, oh, come on, that's impossible. And I just thought, this is ridiculous. But I thought, well, and I like a challenge. So I, I, I looked at this first set of eyes, and I'm like, uh, that, that, sort of, that sort of looks like fear. So I clicked fear. Correct. I got it. So I went to the next one and the next one. I got an 80%. And all I could see was eyes. Folks, we have a capacity to communicate a lot of what's in the heart through our eyes, Add to that the rest of the face. Add to that our words. Add to that our tone of voice. Add to that how we move. We are broadcasting information constantly to people around us. And yet most of us, unless we have someone come up and say, 
hey, I've got a really serious problem. Will you help me? <laughs> Anything short of that, we don't pick up on it. In the mediation cases I've worked on, I've done 600 divorce mediations. By God's grace, over half of them reconciled. And yet again and again in those cases, one of the things I hear over and over again is a wife saying, we have no emotional connection. He doesn't have a clue what I'm feeling. When I deal with teens who are rebelling against their parents, they often say, my mom and dad don't know at all what's going on in my life. They just lecture me all the time. When pastors have lost their congregations, they've been forced out of their pulpits, I've often talked to parishioners who said he, he really didn't love us. He didn't care. He was a great preacher. He preached great sermons, but he never seemed to really care about what's going on in our lives. Now, of course, husbands can feel that their wives don't understand them or know what's going on in their lives. Parents can feel like their kids aren't reading them or understanding their pressures. And certainly pastors can be misunderstood and undervalued by their parishioners. Whichever side of the equation you're on, whether you're in a leadership position or someone who's being led, empathy and compassion is a vital part of human relationships. And yet, all too often, Psalm 69.20 is lived out in our lives where the psalmist says, I looked for comforters, but found none. There are so many lonely, hurting people out there today that just wish so much someone cared enough about them to listen to them and talk to them. And yet we walk right by them as Christians all too often. I'm certainly guilty of that myself. So how do we improve our capacity for relational wisdom and for empathy? So part of it, as I said in the last um, workshop, is just we've got a whole course on relational wisdom, developing all six of these skills. This workshop is focusing in primarily on other awareness, other engagement. Um, that just shows some of the biblical synonyms for these relational skills, remembering God, being faithful, humble, disciplined, compassionate, serving. That's just the basic paradigm that our ministry is using a an awful lot. But I want to focus in just on this issue of empathy and compassion. If you want to write down a URL where a, most of what I'm going to say is given in a lot more detail with all the Bible citations, you can download that free booklet just by going to our website slash empathy. So write that down. You can download a very detailed booklet. It actually has links to a lot of the videos I'm going to be showing too. But let's, let's walk through some of the key principles. As I mentioned a moment ago, a lack of empathy weakens relationships. And it's a very pervasive problem. And as our society gets more and more estranged and polarized, it, it's increasingly difficult um, for people to have empathy. We just tend to judge and feel threatened and get argumentative. So it's a real issue. Defining a few terms. Oh, by the way, there's also a booklet on teaching empathy to your children. Um, for those of your parents, these are skills that you can teach to young ones. And the earlier, the better. They have the capacity for this at a very young age, as my story about my grandson just indicated. I've got a two-year-old granddaughter now named uh, Charlie June, and even at two years, I'm amazed how tender she can be to her siblings when they're hurting or they need something too. That's not always her state of mind, <laughs> but it is occasionally. So it's, it's a God-given capacity. So let's define some terms. Empathy is generally defined as the ability to discern and vicariously experience. So to discern and vicariously experience the thoughts and feelings of another person 
or in simple terms, is to feel what others feel. You understand, you feel what they're feeling. Compassion builds on empathy and literally means to suffer along with or suffer together. And it, it, it includes a deep concern. So you, you discern that someone is hurting or lonely or afraid or discouraged or whatever they're going through. You discern that, but it evokes in you a deep concern for that person who's suffering and a desire to do something about it. You don't just say, well, they're hurting, that's too bad, you walk on. But you think, oh, they're hurting. Is there something I can do about it? That's compassion. And then consolation is an outworking of compassion, and it literally means to be with the lonely one, to be with the lonely one. And it means action, to alleviate or to lessen grief, sorrow, disappointment, other struggles in life. So those three qualities build on one another. We discern what people are going through, we have a desire to do something about it, and we take action. And that goes back to that passage in Mark. Jesus saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved by compassion, and he began to teach them. Let me give an example of empathy in action. This is a clip from a very difficult movie called Stepmom. And in this movie, the, uh, the um, woman played by Susan Sarandon there, the one on the right, she's been married for many years, and her husband has fallen in love with a younger woman played by Julia Roberts, and he is divorcing his wife to run off with a younger woman. You can imagine how hurtful, how hurtful and how bitter you would naturally be to someone who stole your husband. To make things worse, Susan Sarandon, the older woman, finds out she has terminal cancer and she's gonna die. And most of the movie is the conflict between those two women as the anger, the bitterness, the hurt goes, just poisons their relationship, the conflict, the attacks, all those things going on. But toward the end of the movie, Susan Sarandon, the mother, the wife, realizes I've got some choices to make. I'm gonna die soon. And I can either use these last days or weeks to rebuild some relational capital between all the main players. This young woman is going to be the mother to my children, whether I like it or not. You know, am I going to leave her loaded with the bitterness and hatred I've been feeling, or am I going to do something to heal that relationship and make it easier for my children to love and respect her? That is a big challenge. That is something I, I don't know how you would ever do it without Christ, but... In the movie, they do portray it powerfully. As you watch this clip, it's where they finally get together and they've come together and they've realized we need to try to work some things out with each other. And watch the body language, the tone of voice. You'll see initially they come in, they're very guarded with each other. They're very careful what they're saying, but the walls slowly begin to come down and you'll see again this golden result. One makes sort of a vulnerable statement. The other one is a little bit more vulnerable Then this one can be more vulnerable and slowly the walls are coming down. They're sharing from the heart more authentically. They begin to learn how to actually um, console and encourage and help each other, which is astonishing to me. Here's the young woman who stole my husband, and I'm going to try to console and encourage her. Wow. And you'll see there's a point in the movie where, again, there's a significant inflection. Um, again, it's primarily tone of voice, not even the words but they're talking and you'll hear Susan Sarandon say, you're hip and fresh. 
And Julie Roberts says, you ride with Anna. They ride horses together. You ride with Anna. And Susan Sarandon says, you'll learn. And listen to her voice. It is a more loving, soft, gentle voice. And at that point, the walls really come down. And Julia Roberts starts to just open up and share her heart, her fears about being the mother to these children and everything else. And you'll see how they begin to, to really basically love one another, forgive one another, rebuild a relationship because of empathy and compassion. You know, one word can make a huge difference. If the last line there was, I have their past, you have their future, that's a statement that you have it. There's nothing I can do about it. But to say you can have their future sounds more like permission. I'm giving it to you. I'm supporting it. One word can have a huge impact. We couldn't do that kind of thing apart from grace. Common grace for those who do not know Christ, but the special grace we have as Christians having experienced the gospel. You know, the concept in Luke 6 sounds so great. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Sounds so great until you have an, an enemy, until you have a young woman who stole your husband. Then suddenly that passage, love my enemy? Love the woman who committed adultery with my husband. Pray for her. Do good to her. And yet that's what Jesus commands. Now, it doesn't mean we condone sin. In many cases, we need to try to walk through and talk through those issues where there is confession of sin and forgiveness of sin. But that's not always possible with some people. And yet God still says, love your enemies. You can't do it without empathy and compassion. So let's dig into this a little bit more. What's the biblical basis for empathy or compassion? I'm using those words interchangeably at this point. I'm merging them together. Well, the model for empathy and compassion is God himself. God himself. Isaiah 54, 8. With everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your God. The gospel is the ultimate expression of empathy, compassion, consolation. We have, no, we have to look no further than God himself to say what does empathy and compassion look like? It looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus on the cross looking down at the people who just nailed him there saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What's the motive for empathy and compassion? It's to imitate God. If we really understand what God has done for us, our eager desire and delight is to imitate him. One of the saddest developments to me over the last 20, 30 years is the end of the wonderful Hallmark commercials. <laughs> I used to love those commercials. And one of my favorite ones was two little girls dressed up like their mommies, having a tea party. And they're in their mom's clothes or acting like their moms. And Imitation is one of the most powerful ways of showing respect and honor. Little children want to imitate their parents. We as Christians should hunger and thirst and long to imitate the compassion of Christ. This is actually also not just a, a, a desire to imitate, but actually to say, God, it's not just optional. It's a commandment. I'm commanded to do this. 
Colossians 3.12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. It's not optional. It's not optional. It is a commandment in many other passages as well. What's the method for empathy? It's to discern the suffering and the struggles and the disappointments and the needs of the people around us, and then to act quickly, personally, deliberately to alleviate their distress. <clears throat> As Romans 12:15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Someone's rejoicing, rejoice with them, magnify their joy, enter into it with them. But if they're weeping, weep with those who weep. Console them, comfort them, walk with them. These are things that are not optional for followers of Christ. Let's talk briefly about some neurology issues here. Over the last several years, I've just become fascinated with the human brain. And I have to admit to you, up until about 2012, about all I knew about the human brain was it was located between the ears. That was about it. And over the last several years that I dug into emotional intelligence and other concepts to understand this incredibly complex to me, it's the pinnacle of creation. Where do we have the capacity for knowledge, righteousness, and holiness? It's not in our elbows. It's in our brain and our spirit. And I don't know exactly how all that dovetails, but the spirit of Christ in us and the mind that he's given us with all these incredible components of the amygdala and the, the um, hippocampus and all these different things, the neocortex and the different functions of the human brain, it is fascinating. And you, as leaders in your churches, I encourage you, we should be the most passionate, earnest, lifelong students of the human brain because it has a huge effect on how we live our lives, how we think, what our will is, how we manage our emotions and everything else. And so just a few things about this concept of compassion and empathy. We don't know. I mean, the, the, the brain is still largely just mysterious to us in so many ways, but there's some things we do begin to know. And one of the theories that has gained a lot of credibility dealing with this topic specifically of empathy is a concept they call mirror neurons. And it's the idea that when you look at someone else and see someone else that is experiencing something, sadness, joy, delight, whatever it might be, that neurons in your brain actually fire, actually are activated, the same part of your brain that feels what they're feeling is activated and you feel it. So you see someone who's really happy and joyful and you feel happy and joyful. You see someone who's crying and weeping and we are generally moved to be sad with them. My grandson at age four saw his mother crying softly and he was moved. He felt that in his own heart. I think, by the way, this may be part of what goes on in the nursery at church. When one baby starts to cry, they all start to cry. So there's this idea where the brain is designed that we actually experience what the other person is experiencing. It's wired that way by God's design. God designed our brains that we feel what other people feel. And it goes on with both saved and unsaved. Even unregenerate people can feel enormous compassion and empathy. Frankly, I sometimes find them to be more empathetic and more compassionate than people who are Christians. My father was not a believer until an hour and a half before he died. And yet he was one of the most tender-hearted, compassionate, forgiving people I've ever known in my entire life by God's common grace working in his life. So you even see in the Bible, unsaved people 
Pharaoh's daughter, sees a little basket with a baby in it. She's moved with compassion. She's not worshiping the living God. She's not regenerate. And yet this capacity of compassion moves her to pull this baby out of the Nile and raise the child as her own. We see regenerate people in the church. For example, the Christians in Antioch, they hear about other Christians who are suffering with poverty. They're moved to take up a collection. We see it on a macro scale today when a hurricane or tornado goes through our country and Americans pour out money. They drive down to the south. They do all sorts of things. Right now, there's dozens, if not hundreds, of volunteers in Florida digging through that rubble trying to help with one of the greatest tragedies we've seen in our country in a long time. They're moved by this God-given capacity of compassion. Now, there's actually whoops, two types of compassion. The way neurologists uh, analyze this, what can be called cognitive empathy or affective empathy. And the difference here is this. Cognitive empathy is where you see someone or you learn of someone going through some issue and you use your intellectual process of imagination and logic to figure out what they must be feeling. So you find out that one of your friends had just lost his mother. And you remember when a few years ago you lost your mother, you remember how you felt, and you think, boy, this must be really hard. You don't feel it yet, but you can imagine, because of your own experience or your imagination, what that person is feeling. Effective empathy is where you feel it. You actually literally, you hear that someone has lost a parent or some other difficulty in life, and you actually feel with them some of the pain or the joy or whatever they're, they're experiencing. And there's some marvelous examples of both that cognitive and that affective empathy. I, I love reading about Winston Churchill. I just read another biography about him. He's an intriguing man. And um, he wasn't known for his empathy and compassion generally. He, he was very hard on the people who worked for him. Um, very, lots of idiosyncrasies. But at one point, he displayed incredible cognitive empathy. Um, shortly after he came into office, at the beginning of World War II, he learned that his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, who had basically made all these political mistakes that allowed Hitler to get in the position that the war could go on. So ne Neville Chamberlain was racked with guilt and regret over what had happened. Everybody realized they should have stopped Hitler much, much earlier. And they found, Neville Chamberlain found, when just right about the time he went out of office, he had terminal cancer. And when Churchill found out about that, he issued a directive where he said, I do not want any more negative news reports given to the previous prime minister. He was on his deathbed. Churchill knew he must be regretting so many of the decisions. He said, all I want to give Chamberlain is good reports. If there's any good news to be found, send him good news during these last days. A tremendous act of empathy and compassion. Churchill wasn't feeling the grief and the remorse that, in fact, if anything, he probably was struggling with a lot of bitterness toward Chamberlain because he was now picking up the pieces. But he was able to imagine what he's going through and respond in an appropriate way. If you want to see a beautiful example of effective empathy, read the first chapter of Ruth. One of my favorite <laughs> lines in the entire Bible. When Ruth, Naomi, is going to go back to Israel and, and her two daughters-in-law start with her, and then one daughter ends up going back. She's telling Ruth, go back to your people. Ruth says, no, 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 I'm going with you. 
And it's just, you know, sensing, Ruth sensed the sorrow and the hopelessness that Naomi was feeling. She repeatedly wept with her mother-in-law. They were, these two women were weeping together. She refused to leave her. Empathy, compassion, consolation. What could be greater consolation than saying, I'm going with you. I'm going to suffer alongside of you. And this incredible line, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. One of the most beautiful lines in scripture. And I was intrigued in reading this biography of Churchill recently, that at one point before the United States was involved in the war, we're still trying to figure out how can we support England without getting sucked in as a combatant. President Roosevelt sent his number one advisor, Harry Hopkins, to Great Britain to just analyze the situation, understand what's going on, decide is it, is it hopeless or should the United States still try to give aid to Great Britain. And he was supposed to come for two weeks. He ended up staying for four weeks. Churchill spent most of that time with him. The last night before Harry Hopkins was about to get on an airplane, come back to the United States, and the British still didn't know what he was going to tell Roosevelt. He's going to say, you know, it's hopeless. Don't bother sending tanks over there. They'll be used against us. Or are we going to help? And they asked Harry Hopkins if he would give him a hint. And he stood up in this room full of all these top leaders in Great Britain. And he said, to quote the good book, where you go, I will go. And he quoted the passage from Ruth. And the room burst into tears. That's a profound statement to say, we will walk this road together and nothing will part us. And he came back, and as a result of that, the United States eventually did get involved. So how do we develop these capacities for cognitive and effective empathy? Some people are naturally empathetic. My wife is one of the most tender-hearted, empathetic people I've ever known in my life. I am so blessed to be married to her. I, I'm more on the cognitive empathy thing, but I'm developing more effective empathy. We can grow in these areas. So how do we do it? Let me give you seven concrete, practical ways to do this. Number one, enlist all of your gifts, facilities, and resources. Time. It takes time just to sit down and talk with people. We're often very busy. But to slow down, to cancel an appointment, to talk with somebody is huge. Ears, listen to the words, to the tone of voice of what people are saying. We have a capacity to pick up information that we can develop and fine tune. Use your eyes, look at people, look at their face, look in their eyes, look at their expression, watch how they move. Enlist your memory. Remember when you went through something. Enlist your imagination. Enlist your in instincts. You know, I think something's going on here. Can't quite put my finger on it, but I think something's going on here. And often people won't tell us the whole story right away. We have to operate on instinct. Then move in physically, verbally, emotionally. Draw close to people. And it can be physically. It can be simply as turning your chair, looking at someone, putting your hand on theirs. Um, obviously, you've got to be careful about physical touch these days, but there's a place where to touch somebody, to hug somebody, to move close to somebody, to listen, to look them in the eye, sends a message. To move in verbally, to use words like, I'm so sorry. Please tell me more. This must have been so difficult for you. Learning to use words that communicate that we care, we want to know, our tone of voice, and so on. Moving in emotionally. 
weeping with those who weep, showing concern. You think of the passage in 1 Samuel where Jonathan wept with David when David had to flee into the desert. Jonathan communicated his empathy and his compassion in a vivid way. Let me give you a simple example of this. Some time ago, I was in a coffee shop in my hometown, Billings. A man in my church was in there getting a, a cup of coffee too, and I walked up and I said, hey, Bob, how you doing? And his answer was, oh, I'm okay. Now, that's a, that's a different answer from, well, I'm okay. Well, I'm okay means I'm okay. When somebody goes, oh, I'm okay. What they're really saying is, I'm not okay. But they're doing it subtly so they don't really force us to engage them because they're not really sure if we really care enough. A lot of people are fearful of really laying their problems out in the open until they know if the other person's going to care enough to really respond in a meaningful way. So men in particular, I find, lay down one card at a time. They give a hint. So Bob went, oh, I'm okay. He laid down a card. He's going to see what I did with it. I could have said, oh, glad to hear it. See you later, Bob. Walked out. But I picked up on that little inflection. I said, what's going on? He said, oh, you know, family stuff. Again, sort of a casual, a little bit glib, no big revelation. Card number two goes down. I could have walked out. I said, oh, yeah, family. Man, I know that's tough. See you later, Bob. But I said, no, what's going on with your family? Oh, teenagers, you know, Johnny. <laughs> you know how teenagers are. I could have again said, yep, I do know. You've got a tough. I'll be praying for you, brother. But instead I said, wow, teenagers. I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, Bob, what's going on with Johnny? Tone of voice changed, physical touch, looked him in the eye. I said, I really want to know. And his shoulders just drooped. His body relaxed. He said, Ken, Johnny and I had a big fight last night. I told him I could hardly wait till he left for college. He stormed out of the house. I don't know where he is. I haven't seen him since last night. Third card goes down. The whole deck goes down. And I picked up my phone. I just called my office. I said, Chris, I had an executive meeting at 9, but move that back this afternoon. Something important's come up. And Bob and I sat there for an hour and talked. Subtle cues, subtle messages. Took a while to pick up on them, but responding to them with compassion was very, very key to that relationship. Pray for discernment. Um, to say, Lord, I need the Holy Spirit right now. I, I, I sense something's going on. I don't know what it is. I need your discernment. Please help me, Lord. Give me understanding. Give me wisdom. Give me patience. Help me to know the right questions. Asking caring questions. Um, is you don't have to just, it's not a guessing game. You can actually ask for information and draw people out. And sometimes that last, that question, it makes all the difference. I was talking to a man who was a, a deacon in our church one time, and I'd heard he'd lost his job, and I, I bumped into him. I said, hey, Gary, how, how, you, how you feeling about this? And he said, you know, I got, I'm trusting God. And I said, well, I, I know that's what you believe, but how do you feel about this? And he looked at me for a minute. He was sort of like, does Ken really want to know? And again, shoulders change, body softened. He said, Ken, I'm hurt. I'm afraid. I'm struggling. Now, his first answer was, I know God will take care of me. We always have these pat theological answers we give because they think we're supposed to. But if you ask the right questions, you find out what's going on inside, and you can start to minister to people and understand them. So asking caring questions. Think deliberately. We've got a mind. <laughs> We've got a brain. We've got imagination. Um, 
you can ask questions. You can say things. You know, what, what's this person really feeling right now? Why might he feel that way? What do I know about his past? How would I feel if I was in the same situation? You know, when have I had a similar experience like this? How can I show understanding? Is there something that I could say? Is there something I shouldn't say right now? Often we, if we don't think a little bit, we might say things that are actually glib or seem insensitive. So knowing what not to say, just say, Lord, give me grace to think and to be wise. I love watching my wife engage with people. I, I learn so much. I've learned so much by watching elders in our church as they've engaged in people, godly, wise men who are older than me, more mature than me. I've got like videotapes in my mind. I can, can say, what would Rex do in this situation? How would Rich handle this thing? And those videotapes have been there for like 30 years. I've got a videotape library of people who are godly who set an example for me. Help in meaningful ways, finding really practical ways to help people, not just to, you know, the, I'll pray for you. You know, that's so often a throwaway line. We, don't, we even don't remember to do it. And it's often, it's meaningful, it can be significant, but there may be more we can do. I love what Henry Nguyen said years ago. He said, to console does not mean to take away the pain, but rather to be there and say, you are not alone. I am with you. Together we can carry the burden. It's to walk with someone through that situation. Um, And sometimes that means words that we say are going to be helpful to the other person, words of consolation or hope or support. Sometimes it's our actions. My, my dad was not very communicative of feelings and emotions. He, he just came from a generation. You just didn't talk about a lot of those things. But he just dropped by our house almost every day, either came by my office or by my house. And just his presence showing up, I knew what it meant. My dad loved me. My dad loved me. And he always wanted to know what was going on in my life. And if there's some way he could encourage me, it was, just, it was just a blessing to me, just his action of being there. If someone is poor, financial help for somebody. If someone is sick, to be there and visit them in the hospital. If someone's world has been turned upside down by the loss of a job, is there something we can do to encourage them? I love the, the church um, in Billings, the PCA church there, had an incredible ministry of, of uh, diaconal support. It was a very vibrant part of the church, and it wasn't just managing the church property. It was really looking out for the physical needs of people. At one point, I remember a situation where one of our men left his family, drove out to Seattle, sold his car, got on a train, went down the coast into Mexico, disappeared. Didn't even tell his wife where he was going. He was just abandoning his family. And our deacons actually somehow located him. And to this day, it's a closely held diaconal secret. They won't tell us how they did it. But they located him, and so we as elders were reaching out to him, talking to him, begging him, you know, trying to get him to come back, work on the marriage, everything else. And I remember one conversation I had with Bruce, and I was, it's like you've got a 20-pound salmon on five-pound test line. You, you just know that if you pull too hard, you're going to lose him. And I had this real sense. I Finally, I just said, Bruce, you're really feeling like hanging up right now, aren't you? He said, I sure am. I said, why don't you? There's this long pause. He said, Ken, five years ago when I was out of work, our church paid my mortgage and my health insurance for six months. And I, I just can't walk away from that kind of love. Diaco Ministries, in many ways, is forming a bond with people in the church that someday 
You can have one little teeny thread or you can have a good solid rope to pull someone back from the clutches of sin. He did come back. He was reconciled. His family is together today. And I rejoice as I sit and watch him worship. And it was the diaconal ministry that built that bond with him over many, many years. And finally, yielding your convenience and resources. Consolation sometimes. You've got to sacrifice. You've got to give up money or time or resources to help somebody else work through their issues and, and resolve issues. I was down in South Africa a few years ago, and I, I heard a story from a man named Bob Story, who was Nelson Mandela's personal chaplain during the 25 years he was in prison on Robben Island. And he was telling me just some stories about Mandela, and then after Mandela became president, and the whole uh, peace and reconciliation movement that went on there to stop the cycle of racial violence and murder. And one of the things he told me just really moved me, that one of the previous Afrikaner top police officials who'd been violently opposed to a lot of the African National Congress, the people who are trying to overthrow the government. There have been violence, there have been killing, there have been murders. There's, it was just horrible. And when they were seeking to stop that cycle of violence, this man came under deep conviction. He was belonged to the Afrikaner church, a reformed church that had been supporting apartheid for years. And he came to a point of deep conviction of the sin of that position. And he spent the rest of his life traveling around speaking about reconciliation, forgiveness and reconciliation. And at the beginning of every one of those talks, he would get up, he would walk over to somebody in the front row, a, a black person, get down on his hands and knees with a, with a bowl of water and a cloth and wash his feet. And if you understand anything about the Afrikaner culture at that time, that, that'd be like a KKK guy doing that in this country back in the, the 50s or 60s. It was a tremendous act of humility and repentance. He had to sacrifice, he had to yield a lot of his dignity to demonstrate the sincerity of his concern and his compassion. So those are, those are just some of the basic principles, again, that um, I've got a video, but we don't have time for that. So I encourage you to go and get these booklets that are available on Empathy. They can give you a lot more guidance. There's actually some really good video clips that are hyperlinked in those booklets that you can watch. And I encourage you. I, I'm going through this with our grandchildren. I've got four grandchildren today. The, the blessing and the benefit of not killing your children is they give you grandchildren someday. And we are just enjoying this great season of our grandchildren. I mean, our kids were great too, but... I shouldn't even say that. But we love being grandparents. And to sit down with my grandparent, my grandchildren now, and teach empathy and reinforce empathy and talk about emotions and read about the fuzzy-wuzzy bunny who wasn't invited to the birthday party and how do you think he feels and what could you do? And I mean, you can read a children's book, and a lot of the good children's books are loaded with relational dynamics that we can use to bring these things out. Um, there's a smartphone app you can download for free. A lot of these principles are on there that links to hundreds of articles and blog posts on all sorts of different topics and all these basic principles. Um, there's online training. If you want to get have free access, I forgot to put it on this slide, but write down this coupon. It's worth $49 if you want to use it. And it just, it's, um, what is that coupon? Who was here in the previous session? PCA2021GA, PCA2021GA, PCA2021 General Assembly. And that's good for 30 days. If you go to our online course, 
it, it goes into a lot of these principles in a, in a broad sense and lots of illustrations. And if you like what you see, you think, wow, I'd like to share this with other people, we've got that whole course available on flash drive. You can stream it or on DVD. You can get through our online store and start teaching these principles to others. And I, I would just encourage you, in the last session, I was talking about this whole concept of herd immunity. And it's the idea today that if enough people get vaccinated with a COVID uh, vaccine, that they act as sort of buffers to slow the spread of the disease, even if everybody doesn't get vaccinated. Um, peacemaking and relational wisdom is the same thing. If you get a substantial portion of the people in your church trained in these principles, then when somebody who hasn't been trained comes to them and says, did you hear what the pastor did and the elders did? The response is not going to be, oh, yeah, they're terrible, but, well, let's talk about it. Let's sit down. What can you do? How can you help? How have you contributed to it? Can you understand some of the stress that they've been under? And suddenly you've got people who are out there directing people in the congregation in a constructive direction on these relational dynamics. And if you have questions about how to build these concepts into your church, um, one of the things you could do is you could consider sending some folks up to Billings uh, in September. That's our national conference. We've got 25 workshops and some great plenary speakers talking about all sorts of related principles. You can go online, learn more about it. Um, come on up to Montana. I call Montana the porch of heaven. So come and see if that's a fair description. Thank you very much. God bless you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.